incredibly important to the hedge funds to have both a board and a leadership team that the investors would respect and ultimately could build and, and manage a high quality REIT. Hello and welcome to the REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borg from Quito. Before we get to our guest today, I wanted to let you know about our upcoming REITWorks conference. ESG is developing so rapidly and REITWorks offers commercial real estate and REIT professionals a chance to network and learn about ESG developments in the real estate industry. The conference will be on September 12th and 13th and I encourage you to register at REIT.com forward slash REITWorks. My guest today, Bill Ferguson, chairman of global professional services firm Ferguson Partners, is well-versed in ESG, and today we'll be talking about the G in ESG, or governance. Bill recently co-authored a case study published by the Corporate Governance Research Initiative at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business that looks at the unique corporate governance decisions made at Vici Properties. Bill, thanks for joining the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So can we start by um, describing the role that Ferguson played in some of those key early decisions regarding the formation of Vici Properties? Happy to. Just as a frame of reference, um, Caesars uh, went through a significant bankruptcy. There were a couple of private equity firms involved and uh, there was litigation. And, and what happened was that the hedge funds uh, who were investors in the deal ended up controlling the assets. So the casinos themselves, the real estate assets. And um, I think the hedge funds recognized uh, that the only way to monetize that investment was ultimately to combine the assets into a vehicle and then ultimately take that vehicle public as a REIT. So uh, we got involved in working with the hedge funds to initially put a board together that would be uh, satisfactory and ideally attractive to the REIT investors. And then that board's charter was to put together a leadership team that ultimately could um, run the business and uh, and take it public. So it was incredibly important to the hedge funds to have both a board and a leadership team that the investors would respect and ultimately could build and, and manage a high-quality REIT. So what were the, some of the biggest challenges that you faced in that role, and what were the key attributes that you were looking for in both board members and executive management? Well, the biggest challenge, Sarah, to be frank, is that uh, hedge funds are not conversant in, uh, in essence, kind of assembling either boards or leadership teams for companies. You find most of the firms that are good at this, uh, which uh, would include Blackstone and KKR, some of the private equity firms, are infinitely better versed in understanding everything from uh, strategy to leadership to execution. So just working with as many as 15 to 20 people on a phone call at a time who really didn't understand, you know, kind of the qualifications that were going to be necessary to uh, uh, not only put the business together, but ultimately take it public. Uh, that was the biggest challenge for sure. And I, I think it was uh, uh, endurance, I guess, is probably the word I would use of kind of getting through this to a very successful outcome. Uh, we started with the board and, you know, we, we made some fairly straightforward decisions. Uh, we wanted a board that was reasonably sized, probably seven independent directors is, is what we see now in the in the public world. And then we wanted some specific characteristics. Uh, often when you're putting a board together ahead of an IPO, uh, you want somebody who 
you know, has prior board leadership experience, either as a lead independent director, as a chairman, and uh, has that public company board experience as part of that. And Jim Abrahamson uh, fit that bill well. Uh, next, you typically want uh, somebody who has experience as a REIT audit chair, and Diana Cantor had that. And so uh, we recruited Diana. And then the balance of the board, there were a couple of key criteria. We, we wanted diversity, for sure. Uh, we wanted kind of a mix of active and retired executives. We wanted board experience, free board experience where we could find it. And I'd say those are probably the key criteria anyway. So if you go through the board quickly, we talked about Jim Abrahamson, we talked about Diana Cantor, uh, Liz Holland, we appointed to the board, who's an active executive and she has prior board experience at uh, Federal Realty, among others. Craig McNabb, a very successful retired read executive, was added to the board. Ed Petoniak, who turned out to be the CEO, as you know. And then Mike Rumboltz, who uh, has a fair amount of restructuring experience, has a lot of background in, in, in that particular world. So that was kind of the group. And then as we segued to the, uh, to the leadership team, we initially considered Ed as the chairman, but everybody was so impressed with him, uh, we ultimately asked him to be CEO. And Ed, as you may know, has a background in uh, serving as a chairman and lead director, as well as a CEO of public companies in the hospitality space. And so Ed was chosen as CEO. Uh, we chose David Kieske as the CFO. David came out of Eastville, a very strong background in investment banking, M&A, in the hospitality business. And then Samantha Gallagher, we recruited Samantha as general counsel. Uh, she had a prior read general counsel experience. And then John Payne, who had been with the company for a while, who has extraordinarily great contacts and a tremendous amount of respect in the gaming business. So wonderful relationships with the operators and all those people have made a great contribution. And during our ReWorks conference in September, we're going to be exploring issues surrounding governance. How important is board quality for REITs today? And would you say that that's changed over the years? I would say board quality is incredibly important. I think, you know, when, when you see activists out there in, in the space, in our space or any space, sure, to be frank, the first thing they look at is the quality of the board. And if the board is um, long tenured, if the executives are primarily retired, they don't have prior public company experience, if they happen to be closely affiliated with the CEO, none of that augurs well as it relates to good governance. And uh, that's typically what the activists will look at. And I think a lot of companies today, as they're either refreshing their board or potentially launching an IPO, look at the balance of what we talked about before. Active versus retired, diversity, uh, at least half of the directors should have some form of relevant industry experience and you know, at least one of them should be a, a sitting or retired CEO. So that, that framework you know, if followed, I think uh, not only is acceptable to the, the investors, but quite honestly, it proves to be a very successful combination with the leadership team, because at the end of the day, one of the board's principal roles is to make sure they're opining upon the strategy of the business, and hence they need to be qualified to do that. And to what extent do executives matter to a company's success today? And how important are those intangible leadership qualities? I think the executives are absolutely critical. Yeah, I think one of the things that Ed has done in particular, and David and Samantha as well, is is they have gone out of their way 
to communicate with the investors and really develop relationships with the investors. And there are some public companies where the CEOs just don't have that disposition. But I think it's I think it's been a huge benefit to add in the in the in the company. Uh, simply, you know, that openness, that transparency, that level of communication for sure. But you know, when you look at leadership, leadership really is the intersection of, of strategy and having the people skills ultimately to uh, to run a business. And I think you know the great CEOs in our business have the same kinds of qualities uh, that any public company CEO or even any private company CEO would have for that matter. So it really does make a difference, the quality of the executives who ultimately are running a business. And what about the role that governance plays in the long-term performance of a REIT? Are there tangible benefits that can be measured? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, I think if you if you look at you know and we've analyzed boards from a variety of perspectives, um, but you will find some common characteristics uh, in the boardroom relative to the the companies that are performing well for sure, and that gets back ultimately to some of the things we've talked about before. It also includes board members who, on the one hand, are independent, but also clearly are partners with the leadership team. It's a fine balance. But uh, at the end of the day, the board there is to be a fiduciary and represent the shareholders' interests. But the bottom line is that, you know, they also need to be a good partner to the leadership team to make sure that, you know, the strategy and the execution of the business makes sense. And is there anything else from the Vici case study that you think could serve as a lesson to other REITs or publicly traded companies? I think it's just to be thoughtful as it relates to the the composition of the board and the composition of the of the leadership team. I, I think the, the more that you can find people, Sarah, who have some relevant experience in what they're about to do, it makes a big difference. I think especially in an IPO, but in any company, it's okay to have some people learning on the job to some degree, but you really want people who have some background, whether it's industry background or public company background or board experience. You know, you take David Kiske, for instance. Uh, Vici has been a fairly active acquirer. They acquired MGP. Well, David's an investment banker. You know, he's done a lot of M&A in his life. He has a lot of relationships in the industry. Uh, that's been a huge value add to Vici. Same thing with John Payne. Wonderful relationship with all the operators in the business. A lot of the deals that Vici's done have been because John knows the operators, understands who might fit and who might not fit, and they trust him. They believe him. And so, you know, his bonds his word, and that makes a big, big difference in, in continuing to not only operate a company, but also to build one. And stepping back a bit, how would you describe the landscape for senior management recruitment and the availability of talent in the real estate industry broadly today? Well, Sarah, it's changing. Here it is the middle of August. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of economic uncertainty out there and socioeconomic challenges for uh, for sure. You know, as the world slows down economically, I think it's becoming uh, less of an employee market and a little bit more of an employer market. But people are cautious. We're not seeing as much hiring today relative to new business initiatives as far as geographic expansion, new product expansion. And it's just the reality of what happens as interest rates go up and we're dealing with inflation, uh, the economy is slowing down and, and so forth. So I think we are going to see this market turn to where it was probably pre-pandemic uh, relative to employers and employees, or at least 
become a little bit more of an even playing field. There's still work to be done. We as a as a, an overall industry beyond the read industry still have a lot more work to do as far as populating the boards with ethnic diversity. We're still dealing with CEO change and whether that's generational change, uh, whether it's underperformance, whatever, and those you know searches continue. So the empty boxes, so to speak, that have to be filled, there will be hiring there. But I think a lot of the growth that the pandemic has driven in a variety of sectors, you know, ranging from, you know, manufactured housing to data centers to the single family business, whatever, that's slowing down. And because of that, there's not the demand that we have seen really pretty much since the pandemic started. And one of the sessions at uh, ReitWorks will look at the latest trends in REIT compensation policies, workforce practices, and DEI strategies. Are there any trends in those particular areas that you're watching closely? Well, Jeremy Banoff, who runs our REIT compensation practice, is probably better qualified to opine upon the, the compensation piece. But uh, I think generally speaking, ever since, say, on pay, there's no question that the, the chair of the compensation committee of, of a REIT board uh, needs to be very sensitized to underwriting you know, kind of whatever packages the board's putting together for the CEO and the leadership team. Uh, they have to be market competitive and they have to be performance driven for sure. And that's, I think that's going to be the case going forward. No doubt about it. You know, as far as DEI is concerned, what the boards hopefully will do is encourage the leadership teams to take a look at strongly diverse talent and ethnically diverse talent. And a lot of that talent, Sarah, needs to be sourced from industries outside of real estate. You know, for instance, if you're looking for a great general counsel, you're looking for a head of human resources, there's a lot of talented, ethnically diverse people in the Fortune 500. If you look at people maybe coming into the capital market side, the CFO side, even the investment side, you know, there are a lot of private equity firms that have strong capital markets people, strong investment people, and they're coming out of the big Wall Street institutions that have been much more progressive in recruiting and retaining ethnically diverse talent. So as the REITs are looking to build out ethnic diversity on their leadership teams, they often have to look uh, outside of the space in order to you know, drive that ethnic diversity kind of on the board. When it comes to the whole issue of workforce, it's hard to say where everybody's going to end up as it relates to remote versus working in the office. I think going forward, there's going to be a blend for sure where people are going to be asked to come into the office certain days of the week. Are we ever going to get back to five days a week? I don't think in the near term, it's hard to know what's going to happen in the future. But I think people have proven that remote working can not only be as effective or even more efficient, but you know, employees like it. And so I, I think the a lot of the companies that we see that are well-managed are taking that one step at a time and really balancing everybody's needs and desires. Bill, it's been really great talking to you today. Thanks so much for your time. Happy to do it, sir. And thanks thanks for including me and in Vici Properties. It's a wonderful story. You think about basically birth from the bankruptcy of Caesars and one of the, one of the darlings of Wall Street. So congratulations to the board and to Ed, to Samantha, to David, to John. It's been a, been a wonderful run. So kudos to them. Great. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 